welcome. My name is Gil. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakewood. Uh, Pastor Brian uh, would normally be up here, but he's speaking out at Chaminade, Camp uh, Chaminade this week, and so you get me, and uh, well, you'll be okay. So. <laughs> uh, as, we re, uh, as we get into the study of God's Word, we're going to backtrack a little bit in the Gospel of John. Pastor Brian's been, been preaching on the Gospel of John. We're going to go back to chapter 4, as uh, Paul read for us. We're going to deal specifically uh, with those verses in John 4, but I think it would be good as we get into this to set some of the context a little bit, reset it for us, uh, since uh, it's been a while since uh, Pastor Brian was in John 4. Uh, the verses that concern us today happen in the context of a conversation that Jesus is having with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She comes while he's resting there, while the disciples have gone into town to purchase food, and he asks her for water. Her curiosity at his request opens a door for him to speak to her of the new life that he has come to provide. As they're talking, he reveals knowledge of her life that he has uh, that would not have come if he weren't from God, and which uh, prompts her then to ask the question that begins the section of the text that we are considering this morning. Now, some look at this question that she asks as a way for her to evade uh, the discussions of some more uncomfortable areas of her life. Um, you know, as a pastor, I've seen that. Uh, as I've been, uh, that has happened from time to time, but I don't believe that's the case here. Instead, I think she's taking the opportunity to ask a question that's been on her mind for some time now. And she's finally found someone who's obviously sent from God, and so she'd like to have this issue cleared up for her. And I found this common, too, when I taught in Sunday school classes. Sometimes people will ask questions that are a little or a lot off topic uh, because they're curious and they think that I have some knowledge that might be helpful, which means I've managed to fool them. Whatever her mo- <laughs> Just kidding. Whatever her motivation, though, uh, her question is actually very pertinent to what Jesus uh, is talking to her about, what Jesus' purpose is for the conversation. And that's her new life that will result in the creation of a true worshiper. At the core of her question is authentic worship. How is it done? How do you be an authentic worshiper? And so she asks, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, which she points to, that's Mount Gerizim. Uh, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And so in one brief sentence, Jesus covers a great deal of ground and he sweeps away the entire debate. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And Jesus, he's God. So he's omniscient, and in his omniscient, he, omniscience, he knows that it won't be long until both the temple in Jerusalem and the temple that the Samaritans built on Mount Gerizim will be destroyed. But his point is even more significant than that. The temple sites will be irrelevant because Christ, by his death, his resurrection, and his glorification, will render them irrelevant. Now the place no longer matters because new life has come. And now that new life has come, 
The temple of God resides in the hearts of believers, in those who are spiritually alive. Paul explained to the men of Athens in Acts 17, verse 24, that the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man. Paul tells the Corinthian church, God's temple is not a physical structure. Believers are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So worship is no longer limited to a specific place, but it happens in the church, that is, among believers. For it is believers that constitute the church, not a specific building. So, to be the temple of God, you must have the Holy Spirit living in you. For it's the Holy Spirit that makes one spiritually alive. True worshipers, true worshipers are spiritually alive. By contrast, those who are spiritually dead cannot respond in authentic worship. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan has blinded the spiritual eyes of unbelievers to the extent that they are unable to understand what it is to worship Jesus and to follow him, to be a disciple. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we find out that, in fact, human beings are naturally unresponsive to God. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's the natural state of human beings to be unresponsive to God. Paul says we're dead in our sins. When someone is dead, they're incapable of responding to anything. So in regards to God, we're not only blind to His glory, but we're dead, unresponsive to truth. Go further down in chapter 2, in verse 12 of Ephesians, we read, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, in other words, God gave marvelous promises, but they don't belong to us. We're not citizens in God's kingdom. It's, it's like something like the national anthem of another country. We, we might be able to, to appreciate the music and the text, but its significance is, is not only fully felt by those who are citizens of that country. You know, the Olympics are coming. I love the Olympics. It's really one of the only times you'll ever get me to willingly sit down and watch gymnastics or figure skating. And I love it when, when uh, athletes from the U.S. win. I love it because then they, they get to stand on the podium and they put the medals around their chest and my heart, my heart swells with pride as they turn and they watch the flag go up and the national anthem of the United States is played and I, I, I feel, I, you know, I'm an American and I love, to, I love that song. I love to see the flag. I, love, I am an American. I love it. Uh, you know, I appreciate the national anthems of other countries as a musician, 
Uh, I can appreciate them from a musical standpoint. Uh, the, the national anthem of Germany, uh, actually, it's, we use it uh, in the church as a hymn tune. You might recognize it. That's the, that's the national anthem of, of Germany. I, actually, the, the national anthem of Russia is, is a very stirring tune. And when they get to the end, I think, oh, wow, that's a great piece of music. But it doesn't resonate in my heart. It doesn't grip me the same way as... Right? It's not the same. Why? It doesn't belong to us. We can appreciate it, but it's not ours. God gave marvelous promises, but how can we rejoice in God's promises if they don't belong to us? God's promises can be read about, appreciated, but they're not ours. They don't belong to us. It's like visiting another culture. You know, I, was, I just got back from Central America. I was visiting a couple of our outreach partners, Carlos Mesteyer in Costa Rica, and Kike and Becky Fernandez in Guatemala City, and one of the things I like to do uh, when, I ask, when I go visit, especially nationals like that, is, is to ask them questions about their culture. I admit, I enjoyed uh, Guatemala City and, and Costa Rica, but you know, I had trouble reading the signs, and people spoke Spanish, and I, I took French in high school and forgot most of it. Um, and so I asked, I asked Becky, you know, what do you guys do at Christmas time? And she said, well, <clears throat> we, we, uh, we eat tamales. Oh, tamales. And, and they even uh, served me a tamale for breakfast. And I have to admit, I ate the tamale and it didn't taste like Christmas. <laughs> and, and I said, well, what else do you do? Well, uh, for the, almost the whole month of December, because it's a school holiday, we, they're shooting off fireworks almost most, most nights. It sounds like a bunch of guns going off in the city. And I said, oh, that sounds more like the 4th of July than Christmas. doesn't sound like Christmas to me. And I thought, you know, I, I, I would think the same thing would happen to maybe Kike and Becky if they came and, and saw snow and smelled pine trees and, you know, ate ham or turkey or whatever it is uh, that you eat at, at Christmas time that tastes like Christmas to you. And probably go, oh, this is nice, but it doesn't taste like Christmas. It doesn't sound and feel like Christmas. It's, it's, it's different. We can appreciate it, but... It, it, and maybe even enjoy the experience of it. But unless we are born into it or have lived it or are, long, are in it for long enough, we're neither accepted. It's just not home to us. Going on in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Paul continue, continues to describe this natural condition of human beings, dead in their sins, foreigners to God's promises, and then darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So as, as we become more self-centered, we lose more and more sensitivity to the things of God. We hunger for the things of the world, for sensual pleasures and selfish indulgences, and do not hunger and thirst for God. So if all this is true, if we are naturally dead in sin, outsiders to the things of God, blinded to the glory of Christ, and so hard of heart as to be insensitive to God, then it's impossible for us to authentically worship God. 
We can come to church, we can go through the motions, but can really have no hope of engaging with God. How can we be alive with God if we're dead in our sins? How can we rejoice in God's promises if they don't belong to us? How can we love the Scriptures if we're dark in our understanding? How can we appreciate the glory of Christ if we've lost all sensitivity? This is the natural condition of humanity unless and until a great change takes place. And praise be to God, that change can take place. The Holy Spirit works to make people responsive to God. The Holy Spirit working in the life of an individual gives that individual the capacity of being responsive to God. The Spirit causes people who are naturally dead to be spiritually alive. That's the big theological word we use for that is regeneration. The Holy Spirit regenerates you. It makes, he makes you alive where you were once dead. Where you once had a heart of stone, He gives you a heart of flesh. Where you were once unresponsive, you are now responsive. This is what Christ was speaking of to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's what he's telling the Samaritan woman in John 4.14 when he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 shows us that while we were once dead, now because of the great love which He, God, loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The work of the Holy Spirit makes us alive in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So now the promises of God are ours. We can identify with them. We can be at home in the presence of God and with the things of God. Because we are spiritually alive, we can know God. And true worshipers know God. That is, we can know God because the work of the Holy Spirit enables us to know God through His Word. God has spoken. And because God has spoken, we can know Him and we can know what He expects of us. Even though the place of worship was soon to be irrelevant, there were still fundamental problems with the Samaritans' worship. You see, the Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, as Scripture. That was their canon. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was their canon. It was incomplete. And so their picture of God was incomplete. You see, it's in the historical books that we learn that God selected Jerusalem as the site for the temple and the center of worship for the Jews. It's in the Psalms and the prophets where we find so many of the messianic prophecies, the prophecies about the Messiah, the prophecies about Jesus. So much of God's nature and character are contained in the histories and the prophets and the wisdom literature that and, and they were missing that. It's impossible to fully know God without a full revelation. What would we miss if we rejected certain books in our Bibles? For instance, what if, uh, what if we decided we didn't like Romans? 
I don't like Romans. Romans can, let's just toss that one out. Well, without Romans, we would find ourselves missing perhaps the greatest of discourses on justification, on freedom from the tyranny of sin, on freedom from the law's condemnation, and life in the power of the Holy Spirit. What if we didn't want to include Isaiah? We just toss it out. It's kind of hard to understand. It's a little long. Uh, You know, it's one of those books that you have to be, you have to take in a piecemeal because yeah, it can be a little tough. You know, it doesn't read. It's not full of a lot of stories. It's kind of hard. So we just toss it out. Well, without Isaiah, we'd lose so much of the richness of God's judgment and salvation, and we'd miss a lot of the messianic prophecies. We wouldn't know, for instance, that Jesus was to be born of a virgin. We would lose out on. On Isaiah 53, it tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, that by his wounds we are healed. We wouldn't know that. Without Acts, uh, there's no account of the history of the spread of the gospel. If we decided to get rid of First Corinthians, because maybe you know we don't really want to read about uh, what Paul says about the Lord's Supper, or you know who wants to know about love, um, you know we'd lose a lot of our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. I had a phone call once from a gentleman who wished to discuss a point of theology with me, and as we we talked, we went to the Scripture, and we we started in the Gospels. And then as I moved into some of the teaching in the epistles, he stopped me and he said that he didn't recognize those writings as having the same authority as the Gospels because they were not Jesus' words. So he's one of those uh, folks that is referred to as a red letter only person. Um, That's because some Bibles have the words of Jesus written in the red letters and so you know that's what Jesus said and there are even some, some quotes from Jesus in some of the books after the Gospels. And so those are people that only, only hold to those words that Jesus actually said in the red letters to so the red letter only people. And so I found myself in the position of having to defend the inspiration of Scripture, all of Scripture. And while I hope that the Holy Spirit was able to work in that man's heart through our discussion, I found the, the whole thing very, very frustrating Reducing the revelation of God to only the Gospels and a few selected passages in the New Testament books severely curtails the full revelation of God. And Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to set ourselves above the Holy Spirit in determining what is and isn't true or what is and isn't uh, to have authority over us. To know God fully, we must know His whole revelation or we miss out. We have to also live in God's Word. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 through shows how the Word should permeate the fabric of our lives. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And some Jews would literally take small scrolls of the scriptures and place them in small boxes with strings attached and they would tie them to their heads and their foreheads. So those boxes were right here between their eyes. They take that, that literally. That's not what, that's not what this means. That's not what it's asking us to do. It's saying that, that the Word of God should always be in your vision. It's the grid through which you should live in and see the world. And to do that, you have to live in it. It has to always be there. Meditating on it. Studying it. Teaching it to yourself and your children. It should be the main source of reading material and our main object of study. It should permeate our thinking and our speech. When we do this, our thoughts come in line with God's thought, our words with God's words, our desires with God's desires. These will be borne out in our actions. One of the best ways to have that happen is to memorize Scripture so that you can meditate on it. The aim of worship is not to bring God down into our tiny little world. It's to bring us up out of this tiny little world into the vastness of God's purposes for time and for eternity. The great privilege of worship is that when we turn our attention to God, we set aside the clutter of television and sports and meeting with friends and business and vacation plans and focusing on ourselves and we engage our minds and our hearts and our conscience and our will towards God. We have the opportunity to break free from the tiny, stultifying boundaries of our own little world and with the help of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ to be caught up in the vastness of the immensity of God's world and His purpose for time and eternity. We are finite creatures. And as finite creatures, we grow tired of finite things. Movies, books, activities other people, even ourselves. We will never tire of God. We will never tire of getting to know Him. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgment. How inscrutable His ways. God is inexhaustible. And the privilege of worship is that we even now should soak our minds in His wisdom, bathe our hearts in His love, expand our souls through His beauty. Worship involves filling the senses with the glory of God as an anticipation of eternity. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in contemplating God. It is a sea so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. He who thinks often of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of a man or woman as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of this subject of the Godhead. Not only does it expand the mind, it comforts the heart. Would you lose your sorrows? 
Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity and you will come forth refreshed and invigorated. What a privilege that the finite can contemplate the infinite. Thank God that we will not spend eternity contemplating ourselves. We will find instead fullness of joy in Him, contemplating Him forever in an eternity of the glory of God filling our view. Because true worshipers are spiritually alive and know God, they think and they speak rightly about God. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in spirit means that we must worship God according to His nature. Jesus states this in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus isn't suggesting that worship involves some kind of mystical, spiritual, or ecstatic experience. It's it's about recognizing Him for who He is. And responding accordingly. So we must be careful about isolating God's attributes from one another or emphasizing one over others. God is not a collection, a potpourri, if you will, of isolated attributes that are distinct and independent of each other. But so often, when we speak of and think about God, we think and speak about God in this way. We look, we like to talk about God's love or God's grace, or God's mercy, and conveniently forget about, say, His wrath. But God isn't like that. In God, each of God's attributes finds its fullest expression in Him. So that when we say that God is truthful, we don't just mean that He tells the truth, but rather that He is fully and completely truth in every aspect and to the fullest extent. At the same time, God is just in every respect and to the fullest extent, and merciful in every respect and to the fullest extent. I I also once taught in an adult Sunday school class on the attributes of God, and I suggested to them a devotional exercise when they're thinking about God's attributes. Take two attributes of God and meditate on them together. So, for example, uh, take God's love and God's jealousy and put them together. Think of God as lovingly jealous and jealously loving. Or maybe holiness and mercy. Grace and justice. God is graciously just and justly gracious. Omniscient and patient. How does that influence or, or change your thinking about who God is if you, if you put those together? If you think about the fact that God knows everything, He knows the end from the beginning, and yet He's patient. He waits for people to come to Him. He pursues them. He holds back His, his anger and His wrath, His just anger and wrath. And instead shows grace and mercy. But those are together. How, how does that change your thinking about God? We must be careful also of taking analogical or anthropomorphic language 
too far. So, Gil, what's anthropomorphic language? Well, I'm glad you asked. Anthropomorphic language is language that describes God in human terms. Such language, however, is finite and cannot fully explain an infinite God. For example, we have an idea of love from our own experiences, and this helps us to understand somewhat of the nature of God's love, but our understanding of love when applied to God is not identical to our experience of love in human relationships. But God has chosen to reveal himself in this way. He's chosen to reveal himself through human authors, in human words, using human examples to help us understand a little bit about him. But we have to also understand that these things only go so far because finite language can never fully explain an infinite God. So we have to be careful not to take that too far. Not to take any one of these descriptions and isolate it from its immediate context or from the rest of Scripture or from the rest of the character of God or we run the risk of misunderstanding God or having an imbalanced or inadequate picture of God's character. So true worshipers think and speak rightly about God. So when we worship in truth... We must ensure that our worship words are accurate. We must be careful about what we say about God. Way back uh, in the the two years ago, uh, when I was a worship pastor, I took this particularly seriously when it came to songs that uh, were used in our corporate gatherings. And I know from experience now of being here for a year and a half that, that Ted does that as well. Takes very seriously the words that we use. And, and the words of the songs that, that are selected for us. So music has a unique way of, of penetrating the heart with the text and enabling us to more easily in, internalize it. The, the original purpose of congregational singing wasn't to help individual people connect with God. The original purpose of congregational singing, when congregations came together, they, they, they were common people, who, many of whom were illiterate, and didn't have the scriptures in their own language. So in order to teach them doctrinal theological truths, priests and ministers would, would crystallize them down into easily digestible and understandable chunks, lyrics, that would then be set to familiar tunes, or, or tunes that were easily accessible. And so those truths were then sung and internalized and taught. And, P- and congregations would come together to sing those truths, to learn Scripture, and to sing them to each other. That's how, that's how doctrinal truth was taught, uh, beyond just preaching and expositing Scripture. So, when we come together and we sing together, we're singing truth to each other. We sing these truths to each other. Yes, there is an element of... of individual connection with God in what we do. That, that's not what I'm, I'm not trying to go away from that. What I'm saying is there, that's the reason why we come together. Okay? To encourage each other. To build each other up. To learn together. And to help each other. Otherwise, why bother coming together? Right? I mean, music here is, is good, but, you know, maybe some of us don't, don't really like some of the songs and we could put together our own a uh, playlist of songs that speak to our hearts and help us connect to God better than maybe what happens here, right? And, 
Brian's a pretty good preacher and I'm okay, but um, there's, there's guys like, you know, Colin Smith and, and uh, others, others that are really good, really, really good. And wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to, to, you know, you get fed more if you went and listened to them on your iPods or, or in, in your car or downloaded recordings? I mean, you could customize a worship experience that's a lot more meaningful than coming here uh, all for yourself. What is it about coming here? Why do we come together? We come together to encourage each other. We come together to sing doctrine over each other. We come together to learn together. We come together to, to be the church together, to pray for each other. That's why we come together. It's not about an individual connecting with God. It's about us being together and encouraging each other as we walk together and as we reach out into the world for, for Christ. It's not about us. It's about each other and it's about God. So, getting back to music, what we sing, because we're teaching doctrine to each other, what we sing is important. It has to be right. It has to be accurate. It has to say right things about God. Music has a unique way of penetrating the heart with the text and enabling us to be more to more easily internalize it. When my daughter Ashley was in Awana, she had to memorize a lot of scripture, and Melissa used to use music to help her memorize her Awana verses, and she learned them much faster that way. Excuse me, and she remembered them better. And it wasn't unusual to hear her singing them around the house or in the car. Think about commercial jingles. Um, They're not just snappy tunes. Uh, They're a means of making an advertising message become more penetrating. Think about this. Uh, If I sing... What company is that? Ace Hardware. And what do you learn about Ace? They're helpful. Right? And it's true. Uh, we used to have a hard, uh, an Ace Hardware uh, across the street from our house in Circle Pines, and it was very convenient. I'd walk over there, uh, and, and when I'd walk in, someone would immediately ask, can I help you, sir? And uh, unless I was feeling particularly manly and would say no, and then wander around the store for an hour looking for what I needed, I'd say, yes, actually, I'm installing a dishwasher, and I need these things. And they would take me to where I needed to go, get me the things I needed, and stay with me until I found all of those things. The songs we use in our corporate gatherings, they're not just tools for us to express praise and worship to God. They're tools through which we learn theological truths. So if the song of a text contains error, then we sing that song, we practice, we learn error. We rehearse the error. That's why when I was a worship pastor again, and why Ted takes it so seriously, we didn't... When I was a worship pastor, we didn't do some songs even if they were popular because some of them said things that weren't entirely right. And if I put them up up in front of our people on Sunday morning, then I was helping them to practice error. This principle applies to preparations for teaching and for leading devotions. We, We have to handle God's word with care and teach with care so that we don't teach error and lead someone into wrong thinking about God. This also applies to what we take in, what we watch on on YouTube and on television and what we read. Test it. Make sure that it's accurate to Scripture. The only inerrant book in your library is your Bible. Everything and everyone else are measured by its standard, and we should never think that just because something made it into publication 
that it's necessarily reliable or true, unless it's on the internet, right? They don't put anything that's not true on the internet. Not. <laughs> and I know, we know that about secular books, but I, I think we're sometimes too trusting of, of Christian publishers, or Christian bookstores, or, or Christian blogs, and Christian writers. Um, my daughter once came home with a book from First Free's library, the, my last church, about the, um, the creation account. And the book, uh, it, was, it was a fun little book, uh, helped to describe the creation in a, in a unique and, and, uh, and fun way. Uh, the guy started with, pretty much followed, followed along the scripture, the creation of light and then the earth. And when he got to animals, he became rather fixated on giraffes. I don't know, I think he had, maybe he got scared by a giraffe or something but in his past life, earlier in his life, but he was, he was just obsessed with giraffes. I never understood quite what he was thinking, but uh, then he'd get to the end, and when God was surveying all of creation and, and laughing with him about giraffes, um, he started to talk about God looking around at creation and not finding any, anything in creation that that where he would have a friend. And so God created man because he needed a friend. Yeah. Well, we know from studying God's word that God is fully sufficient within the Trinity, that he he lacks for nothing, that he doesn't need anything, that the relationships that, that exist within the Trinity are fully satisfying and there is complete love and complete fellowship within in the Trinity. So God didn't create human beings because he needed a friend. Someone to talk to. He created human beings to glorify Him. He created human beings to see all that He is and to worship Him for it. He created all of creation to display that glory. So, the author might have been... Uh, you know, not everything is this obvious, but, but think about this. Are we honoring God? Are we worshiping? If we take a, a book like this and we read it to our children... It might be pleasant and enjoyable, but it's wrong in what it teaches about God. The author of the book, I don't know him personally, but he might be a believer. But his knowledge of God is woefully inadequate. And so, despite what motivation might have been in his heart, what this book says about God is wrong. It dishonors God, and it's not an act of worship. The book was published in 1987, but it was new to First Free's library. It's not there anymore. They threw it out after I put it in this sermon. But the publishers and editors have worked with this book and have perpetuated an error. Pure motivations are commendable, but pure motivations coupled with error do not constitute worship that honors God. So we have to take care in what we take in and what we let out. If it's, our, if it's the desire of our heart to worship and honor God, then when, what we think and what we say about Him must accurately, accurately reflect who He is. So, as we circle around to our conclusion, I'd like to profile for you two young men, Bill and Ben. Bill comes to church. Bill shows up on time. He stands up for the songs. He mumbles along with the words. He closes his eyes for prayer. He listens to the sermon. He briefly greets a few friends afterwards, and then he goes home. During the week, he reads sporadically from his Bible, but it's not a priority. And he may even pray uh, every so often when he finds himself in need of something that he cannot readily acquire on his own. Bill's religious. 
Ben comes to worship. Ben is a worshiper. Like Bill, he comes on time and stands up for the songs. However, he uses the words of the songs to fill his mind with thoughts of Christ. He uses the words of the prayer to confess his own sin to the Lord and, to, and then to reach out by faith to embrace forgiveness so that it will be his own. He finds that in the sermon as he listens, God speaks to him so that he is stretched and challenged and encouraged. And at the end of the service, he looks for opportunities to encourage, to edify, to build up, to pray for, to reach out to others and encourage them. When he goes home, Ben feels that he has met with God, that he has been in God's presence. As he moves through the week, Ben searches the scriptures regularly and hungrily. He spends significant time in prayer, not just presenting requests to God, but also meditating on who God is and allowing him to speak to him in his quiet times. Ben worships. Now, outwardly, a casual observer might not notice too much of a difference between the two of them. Both, both on the surface appear to be religious, but in a way that really matters, Ben is very different from Bill. Bill's experience is one of dull routine, while Ben's experience is a life-changing encounter. When we worship, when we come to, to worship, others may see whether we are in our usual place, the seat we paid for, whether we have a reverent demeanor, whether we are joining in the songs and other activities, but it only shows, but only God knows whether we are truly worshiping. Only God knows whether our spirit is alive, whether we know Him, and whether we are thinking and speaking truth, whether we are truly worshipers or merely religious. We may be able to deceive others, and we may even possibly be able to deceive ourselves, but only God knows whether our worship is in spirit and in truth, or whether it's a sham. If you want to be a true worshiper, I would invite you to start today, right now, here in this place. Become spiritually alive. Repent of your sins. Accept the free gift of salvation that Christ offers. I will be here. Ted will be here down front. We'd love to have the opportunity to talk with you more about that. If you are already a believer, but you don't really know God, know the God you believe in, get in the habit of study, prayer, and scripture memorization. Again, we can ha- help you with that. We'd be happy to help you with that. If you are a true worshiper, stay with it, persevere, and take the responsibility of helping others know God and, by grow, and grow by speaking rightly about God. And when we do this, we bring Him glory And we fulfill our created purpose. Let's pray. As we've gathered together, Lord, to to sing about you, to, to sing over each other truths of your word, to learn about you, to be worshipers together. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths that you have have shown us this morning that they would be planted deep in our hearts, that they would change us, that your Holy Spirit would be continually renewing us, that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, as Paul writes in Romans 12, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is our spiritual act of worship. Help us as we go this week to recommit ourselves to spending significant time 
with you.